Father, as we uh, come to the rich part of your word, it's all rich, but this one particularly speaks to us today. I pray that you would make it alive to us in the power of your Holy Spirit, that it would be life-changing for us in little and uh, big ways, uh, in everything we face in life, uh, in everything we think about, and everything that we do. And uh, I pray that it would be you speaking this in power today, today in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm reading a passage which is a great passage of scripture, it's Romans 8 and we're starting at verse 30, although the passage we're looking at starts at verse 31. Those he predestined, he also called, those he called, he also justified, those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring us any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is it that condemns? Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised from life, is at the right hand of the Father, also interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor, nor neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation... We'll be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a pretty good passage, isn't it? Yeah? It speaks for itself, so I won't be doing much more than talking about what it says. But um, this is a sum up. It's kind of like Paul's been saying, you know, I laid out some theology about sin, and then I laid out some theology about the cross, and then I told you about justification, and then I told you about victory, and then I told you you're going to struggle with sin, and then I told you about the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to sum it up now to make sure you know what I'm on about. Okay? And and that's what he does in this passage. And you would think it was pretty plain, but um, a a number of years ago, it's kind of stuck in my memory for some reason. Uh, I was about 25, so I guess that's more than half a lifetime ago. Uh, I was with an old bloke in a church. He was sort of a lay preacher type guy. And he was explaining to me why this passage didn't it said that we're not safe with Christ. Okay? He was one of those guys... You know you call someone a legalist? That means that he had lots of laws he had to follow to make himself right with God. But he was one of those people. And he said, now, it's like this. You say God holds you in the palm of his hand. There he is. Put, he said, put your fingers in your hand. So, yeah? He said, now, pull them out. And I went... He said, no, pull them out. He said, How's it? He said there you see... You can pull yourself out of God's hands. Now, part of what I want to say today is that that's a lot of rubbish. And hopefully I'll get to explain why in the middle of it. So you're looking forward to that, aren't you? But it is. Because if that was the case, we'd all be in trouble. Now, I'm going to go through seven questions and then seven threats. But the threats are going to be small if you're counting the time and dividing by seven. Seven questions. Why seven questions? Because Paul asked seven questions in a row. I don't know if you noticed that in that passage. He asked seven questions in a row. 
Okay, and he makes a few little statements in these. We're going to answer the questions as we go. But to begin with, we're going to see what he's talking about. This is before we get to the question. He says, what shall we say in response to these things? What things is he talking about in response to what? He's saying those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, one thing you've got to say about that passage is it's all what God's doing. One thing you've got to say about that passage is a lot of people struggle with it greatly. Because it's got that word predestined in it. And, and what that means is that God had a preset plan and destiny for, in this case, his people. So we can say, Michael, God had a predestined plan for your life. I wonder why people will struggle with that. Okay, we'll talk about that. But you see, if you don't have an understanding of God being predestined, you, of God's predestining purposes, you're always going to live on the edge. You're always going to be worried. There's always going to be concerned. But you see, if God could predestine anything, just one thing, like Michael's life, then that means he is unstoppable in everything. Right? Because you see, otherwise, the other side of that is either God's ruling... Or God is subject to us. And that's what people want to say. You can pull yourself away from God. You can make your own decisions. Okay, so God can't do anything unless you go along with his plan. In other words, God is subject to us. Do you understand what I'm saying? Either, either we're subject to God or God's subject to us. Yeah? It's, it, because And predestination says God is not subject to anyone he says he, he calls some people, he predestines them, then he calls them, then he forgives their sins, he justifies them, and then he glorifies them. And he doesn't even ask, it's like, I'm not even asking for our permission. What's the go here? Okay. What shall we say in response to this? Question one is that. What shall we say in response to these things? That is what he's just said. He's predestined, he's called, he's justified, he's glorified. What can you say in response to that? Got any thoughts? Thank you is a good thing, God. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Thanks for that. Maybe even praise God. Yeah. Or, Or you can say, that's not how it is. We're just kind of disagreeing with God's rulership. But you see, uh, here, I think that this draws us to a place of praise. Look at what he has done. Because I don't know how you think about yourselves, but I see myself, from a true point of view, as a, as a sinner who used to sin and now knows more about my own sin now than I ever have before, so I sin even more in my eyes. Maybe it's less, maybe more, who knows? But I see more of it. And to hear of a God who has a predestining plan, who's called me, who's justified, who's glorified me, ah, thank you, Jesus. Because I can say, I, this, is what, this is purely my belief, and I think it's what this is saying. If God was waiting for us to choose him, we'd all be in hell. That's plain person's language. So, what should be our response to these things? Praise him for his glory. Question two. If God is for us, 
who can be against us? Okay, if God's for us, who can be against us? Well, your answer might be, well, there's lots of people against me. That's true. I, I think that is true. Yeah, there, there's lots of situations. But what he's really saying is here, who can really stop us if God is the sovereign ruling God who's in control and he can predestine things so he knows the future and we know he knows the future because he knows the end. If he, he knows all that, who can stop us? Who can be against, Who can actually have any real influence on our life? The devil's not sovereign, you know. The devil does oppose God, but he cannot upset God's plans. There's not a war of like the good guys versus the bad guys. And gee, we really hope the good guys win. That's not it. God created the devil. God's already said he's getting thrown into the fiery pit. That's the end of the story. Can the devil say, no, not if I choose not to. He doesn't get that choice. Who can actually stand against us when we belong to the God who's in control? No one. Question three. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Okay, he's sort of saying this. If God, in his eternal plan, decided to give up his son for us, does that mean, in his grace, he's going to carry through on his promises to give us all things? What's the answer? Yes. Absolutely. Right? You can't stop wondering about the fact that God sacrificed his own beloved son for us. And if you think on that, and then you think about the fact, who was he sacrificing for? Who was Jesus dying for? Well, angry, rebelling sinners. And he gave up his love, he gave up his son, sorry, in grace and love when we didn't deserve it at that point. That is a mind-blowing love. It's a mind-blowing grace. It is nothing like this world. This world knows selfishness. That is a selflessness of God. That is incredible. Now, if he did that when we didn't deserve it, and he's also promised that creation's going to be renewed and we're going to be heirs over creation and it's all going to be, we're going to be under him and we'll be his children and he will give us all things, can we rely on that promise? If he gave up his son, well, yes. Can you understand what I'm saying? It's Paul's logic and it's good logic. You see, Adam and Eve, if you look at sin, what they wanted is to be like God. They wanted all things. They wanted everything. And, then, uh, and so then God sent Jesus to save us from our sin. And then Jesus comes in 1 Corinthians 15 and says, and then the end will come and Jesus will have all authority and rule and power. And he's ruling over everything. And then he gives it back to the Father. He doesn't want all things. He's happy with God being God and him being the son of God. And you see, that is also what it will be with us at the end. And I look forward to this time because, you see, we won't be rebelling. We won't want to be above God anymore when we're in heaven. We're going to go, I'm so glad you're God and I'm your child. Do you understand that? And And he says, yes, and I'm going to graciously give you all things. And we can rely on that. Because he sent his son. I hope you can understand that. And at the centre of all things is a relationship with the Father. The best thing ever. 
Question number four. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Again, the answer could be for you, well, lots of people. The chief person who brings charges against me is me, by the way. I don't know about you. I think the harshest critic I've ever got is me. The one who most thinks that I'm guilty and don't deserve. I most beat myself up. I pour out guilt and accusation. I don't need anyone else. But I often bring a charge against the one God's chosen, which is me. Other people pour out guilt and accusation. The devil is the accuser. He brings accusation. You get that in the middle of the night, don't you? Where you suddenly realise that you're a nobody and you're not worth living. He sends demons to torture us with accusation and guilt and shame. So who will bring a charge against us? Lots of people. In other words, who's throwing mud at you? Heaps of people. But what Jesus has done is given us a Teflon coat so the mud don't stick. In other words, what he's saying is what will stick? You see, I didn't read the whole verse there. I tricked you. Did you notice that? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. He's giving you a little hint there. If God is the one who justifies us, if he's the one who makes us right with him, if Jesus has taken all the punishment and had a perfect plan for our salvation, if Jesus on the cross shouted out, it is finished in our plan for salvation, then who can bring a charge against us that will stick? No one. No one at all. It cannot happen. There is not going to be. Someone's not going to appear and say, and say to God, you know, actually I want to tell you something about Emily that you didn't know and God's going to go, oh, I don't know if I will accept her now. If she's done that, she just died for that too. Do you understand? If God is the one who justifies, who can bring a charge? No one. This is good stuff, isn't it? Yep. So if you hear an accusation in your mind, it it is not right. It has not come from God. If God's the one who justifies, is he going to go, there, you're a failure? Is he going to do that? He's a God who justifies. He died once for all, brought full justification. So, if you feel uh, an, an accusation coming on at any point, then put justification in your pipe and smoke that. If you're that sort of smoking person. Okay. Question five. Who then is the one who condemned? Condemns. Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who raised to, was raised to life, is at the right hand of the Father also interceding for us. Who condemns us? This is not just who brings a charge against us. This is who says this bloke or this lady deserves death? Again, we might say, who can... Actually, who has a right to condemn us, really? Does the devil... Actually, didn't he sin as well? He's just a hypocrite. If he, if he accuses you of your sin, isn't he? Yeah? He's got no right. There was a point in, in John's Gospel in about chapter 7 or 8 where this lady who's caught in the act of adultery is brought before Jesus and, and they say, what are you going to do? You know what the law says? Kill her. And, and he says, yeah, but the one who is without sin throw the first stone. And then the people, they hated the fact that they were beaten and they wandered off and then he was left alone with the woman and he said, uh, amongst other things, I do not condemn you. There was one person there who was without sin. 
That was Jesus. There was one person who had a right to throw that stone to kill the adulterous lady and everybody else in the crowd, by the way. And he didn't do it. Can you see what that's? Who's the one that condemns? Jesus Christ who died more than that was raised to life. Is it right here? In other words, who is the one who's condemned? There's one person who condemned you in all of history and that's Jesus who has the holiness to do that and he says, I do not condemn you. In fact, it says he died for us. So if he died for us and not only that, he now stands at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. In other words, he's saying to the Father through, through Levi's faith in Christ, he's mine and he's mine and she's mine and he's mine and she's mine and so on. Right? Jesus is saying that. Now, he is the only person who condemn anyone, can condemn anyone, and he doesn't. In fact, he's praying for us. He's mediating for us. He's defending us. I started this story by saying, who can, can you pull yourself out of the love of God? He's dealt with all our problems. Can you see that? He's dealt with our sin. He's dealt with our condemnation. He's done that. Can you be separated from the love of Christ? Well, only if God's a failure. God has dealt with the biggest problem I have. Me. Who is he condemned? Who is he that condemns? The only one who can is Jesus and he does not condemn. Okay. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You're kind of getting the answers to all these now, aren't you? Yeah? Who can? Well, he showed his love. Just think of it like this. We were undeserving, angry, rebellious, lawless, obstinate fools, right? And he loved us when we were at absolute worst, okay? And he died for us. Then that has got to show that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because we've done it all. And he still loved us. So what are we going to do? Some more? You, you understand? If he just died for the high achievers, if he just died for those who deserve it, then we couldn't be sure ever because have we been a high achiever enough? Have we deserved it enough? Right? But when we admit that we're sinful and we need him, then what we're actually admitting is nothing can separate me from the love of God that's come through in Christ Jesus. We're admitting that. Then we can know it. Okay, last question. Question seven, which has seven parts. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can these seven things separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Troubles. You see, it's these threats to our life which actually kind of bring to mind for us maybe this is going to separate us from the love of Christ. Can trouble... If there's trouble coming, as someone said to us the other night at the Bible study, you know, when you're in trouble, you've got to repent when, you, uh, when bad things are happening, otherwise, because it means God's angry with you or something like that, and then you repent and then it all comes good. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. If it worked like that, I'd be struck by lightning. Yeah? It, it doesn't work like that. Okay. You cannot... Where are we up to here? Oh, that's right. Troubles. Do troubles show that you've been separated from the love of Christ. No, they don't. Whatever those troubles are, and we have lots of troubles, whether they're financial or relational or whatever, they don't separate us from the love of Christ. He's still there with us. Hardship. Is he still there in hardship? 
Yes, he's there in hardship. In hardship, we often don't recognise him there, right? It's, it's usually five years down the track, we go back, gee, he was looking after me then, I just didn't know it. And he was holding on to me. You see, that's the point when uh, people used to say that God was like this, so Jesus was like this rope that comes down from heaven, you hang on to it and hang on tight, and if you hang on really tight, you'll be saved. It's not. God in his love holds us in his hands. Yep. We might even try and jump out. You know, if you catch a frog and you go, catch, stuck back in there again. Yeah. You're safe in his hands and hardship is not a sign that you've jumped out. Persecution. Persecution is when other people pour stuff on you, when other people give you problems. Can that separate you from the love of God? No. Can famine, disasters, natural disasters, that sort of thing? No, he's in control. Nakedness. Nakedness in the Bible is associated with shame. Remember when... Um, Adam and Eve, when God, they'd sinned and he'd come walking, they'd run and hide. It was really cool the other day. We were down at Deer and Bandy and, and Ned shouted out, Wade, come here. And Wade says, hide. And it was like, yeah, straight back to the garden. Yep. Okay. Shame causes us to hide. But what did God do? He, he killed an animal and, and covered their shame. Yeah. He sent Jesus on the cross to die for us in the same way as a sacrifice, to take away our shame. In other words, it's not going to separate us from the love of Christ because the love of Christ was what covered our shame. Can danger, that's things that we fear, sickness and death, things that stand over us. Can that separate us from the love of God? It's pretty hard when Jesus was raised from the dead, isn't it? To separate us. Can death separate you from the love of Christ? We'll get there in a minute. Sorry. Can swords, that sword... Old, Old Testament language, guns, violence, world wars, nuclear bombs, dangerous people. Can they separate you from the love of Christ? It's a pretty exhaustive list, isn't it? He's kind of going with every situation. You know the answer to this, don't you? Really got to hear this. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. What he's done for us on the cross Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He's quoting Psalm 44 and he's quoting a verse where the people are saying, Our enemy's too strong, can you help us, Lord? And then the, and then the middle of the psalmist goes, Yeah, God's people have been dying for years, haven't they? Yeah. Can death separate us from the love of God? No. That's what he's saying. Nothing can. Okay. Trial sufferings. All gone. Good. In all these things, so we've got our seven questions, we've got the seven threats, we've got one great, incredibly powerful, sovereign love of God through Jesus Christ that's come to us. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all those problems, whatever problem you face in your life, you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, you're not a conqueror yourself. You are victorious in his victory. It's never us because it's always to his glory, isn't it? There's no glory in me saying, hey, I'm a sinner. There's nothing nice about that. But there's something glorious about a God who has reached down into, as a friend of ours said, into the, the, the ash pits of human 
rubbish and he's lifted us out, put us on his mantelpiece and called us the trophies of his grace. That's glorious to God, isn't it? All glory to God. For I'm convinced that neither life, this is the sum up, neither life nor death, or death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nothing spiritual, neither the present nor the future, oh, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, don't worry, it can't separate you from the love of Christ, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. That's the kind of bit where it just goes, just in case I've forgotten something and you've thought, what about that? No, not that either. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I hope you can hear this today. This is not, well, it is doctrine, but it's not just doctrine. This is all about all of life. And if you can hear that, it would be life-changing. If you, can, if you can see that Paul's not talking about, okay, here we are, it's Sunday and we gather together. And it's good to be together. And, and we worship God in, in singing and we pray and we hear the word. But he's talking about trouble and hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger. He's talking about all the stuff that happens in the paddock. Yeah? When, when you're riding the four-wheeler and you see the hole and the wheel goes into it, that thing. He's talking about that. That's the danger, isn't it? He's talking about the drought. He's talking about the flat tyre and he's talking about the sick child. He's talking about the paddocks which are full of feed. He's talking about the paddocks when they've got no feed. You see, this is very, very practical because at that point, all of us, we might not mouth it in these words, but we think it in the back of our mind, what are you doing, God? What's going on? And this gives an answer to that. And if we can hold that in the mind, we know what he's doing. And it's good. We don't know what he's doing exactly. But we know his plan for us. And nothing can separate us from the love of God that's come to us through Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you hear that? And, and when you are, are, as I say, rounding up cattle, you're mustering, you're doing whatever. And, and something annoys you or something excites you or whatever, whatever's happening. Understand this. This is coming from the God who's in control, who loves you, and you will never be able to be plucked out of his hands because of Christ Jesus. Put your trust in him. I'm going to pray. Father, all of this just makes us want to say thank you so much. Thank you, our God of grace. And I pray, Father, that powerfully, by your Holy Spirit, you would cause this word to come alive to us, not just today, but tomorrow and the day after. I pray that you would bring it to mind when we really need it. When we have doubts about, about whether Jesus is enough, about whether he's even part of our life, when we have unsure times, when we have times of depression, when we have times where we, we can't even control our own minds, when we can't control our bodies, whatever it is, Father, I pray that at those times you would remind us again that nothing can separate us from your love which has come to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Father, fill us with your spirit to know the truth of the gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.